Amen. I've probably mentioned it before, but I'll say it again for those that might know, might not know, but um, I grew up with my father being a tradesman. So my father, he's a carpenter of sorts, and he specifically works on airplanes, and it was always a lot of fun for me to be able to follow in his footsteps, as you will, as a kid that got to hang around airplanes and work with tools and specifically work with wood. And it's so interesting to me just how people are able to gain these skills, these master craftsmen's of sort. And I know many of you in the audience today are tradesmen or craftsmen, and you've been able to learn your skill, and you probably know the story of how that happened. And I think sometimes it best happens when we learn at the feet of somebody who is better than us. Well, for this series and thriving discipleship, we're trying to do just that. We're trying to learn at the feet of the greatest teacher of all time, Jesus. If you didn't know, in Japan, there is a tradition there of sword making. Now, it's a really, really important tradition and really an art of sword making. But what's interesting about the sword making that goes on in Japan is that there's actually only a handful of people who have gotten to the level of being a true master craftsman within sword making. And what's even more interesting is that most sword makers in Japan today can only make 24 swords in a single year because the government wants to make sure that every single sword that is made by these master craftsmen are at the quality and honor of the tradition. But even more interesting than that is that most of the swords that are made in Japan come from a sword called a koto. And if you didn't know, this sword koto was specifically invented around the 8th century to the 14th century. And all the Japanese sword makers from that time, in most of the swords that are made are some version of these kotos. But what's interesting is, is that not a single koto could actually truly be replicated. Now, that sounds kind of odd that we're hundreds of years removed from that period, a thousand in some cases, and not a single koto could truly be replicated. And the simple answer for that is because around the time of the 14th to the 15th century, that tradition completely died. And and other tradition came and usurped it that was inferior to the Koto. But because of this, no disciples were made. And all of the mastery of its art died with that last generation. And because there's no manuscript and there's no formula and there's no instructions on how to make a Koto, every single sword maker to this day is just trying their best to replicate what once was. Now, I find that very interesting as I think 
about the Christian faith. Because here we are 2,000 years removed from the life of Jesus, if you think about it, right? 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth and did what he did, right? And yet we consider ourselves, for those that claim the name of Christ, to be his disciples. But oftentimes the question that I wonder is, are we a good representation of what it means to be a disciple of Christ? Are we reproducing and creating within us and within the generations that follow within this church of Peace Mennonite Community Church a similar product of what it means to be a follower of Christ? Or has there become, or has there, is there a disconnect now between who we are and who Christ really called us to be? I think in order to talk about this more, to talk about discipleship, to talk about the mission of Peace Mennonite Community Church, I want us to look into a specific moment in Jesus's life. Now this moment in his life might surprise you because I think there's many verses that we could look at when when talking about discipleship and I think for that reason this is going to surprise you that we're here but I want you to bear with me and just track along as best as you can. So if you have your Bibles please open up to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking through verses 1 through 12, John chapter 2. And I think in here we see some revelation on why Christ came into this world and why we are as Christians to continue on in his mission. And if you didn't know, this story within scripture is a significant moment within the life of Jesus because it marks his first public miracle within his ministry. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read the first three for you, so please follow along as I read. It says this, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So Jesus finds himself in this region of Galilee, in Cana specifically, which is in the hills of the west. It's a small village north of Nazareth in the same region where Nathanael, the disciple, was from. And there Jesus finds himself at a wedding. We're told that he's been invited to this wedding, but we really don't know very much more than that. It's most likely their friends or their family members, and that's why they got invited to this wedding. But even to that point, we're not fully sure. But what's interesting is, is that not only Jesus is there and his disciples, but who else? His mother is there too. And again, we're not fully certain why Jesus' mother is there, but she's there. Now, I don't know about you, but I love weddings. 
In fact, I used to jokingly say that the reason why I became a pastor is because I love to marry people. And I love to marry people and be at weddings and just enjoy in the celebration and the happiness of seeing two young people, usually young people, not always, but two people come one to make the vows before each other. And I am in that moment usually the fluttery guy that just is looking there and just crying and stuff and just loving it all. And Abel, I'm going to call you out, man. I'm very mad that I didn't get to marry you guys because I came in at the right time, but it didn't happen because COVID. I'm still working over that, those feelings there. But I love weddings. I love what they represent. And in this wedding moment, something terrible happens. The wine runs out. And there's no neighborhood Jerusalem Costco to go to to take care of this issue. But I think in order to understand the depths of this story and just even how significant it is, we really need to understand the culture of what it meant to get married within first century Palestine. Because you see, I think for us it's so easy to read scripture and in some ways to just see it within the lens of our own day and forget the impact that some of these, meaning, uh, some of these moments would have. Because I think in very many ways that this whole entire story is symbolic of God's kingdom, of Jesus's mission, and really what Jesus wanted to accomplish. And it's so fitting that it is the first miracle that he publicly performed. So if you didn't know this, much like our culture, people in Palestine also got married. A man and a woman would come together. But unlike our culture, most of the time, marriage was the joining of two families that was typically prearranged. That is, that people in that time did not necessarily marry for love or marry for romantic feelings that two people would have had for each other and then they would have decided to get married. Oftentimes the parents and specifically the fathers would help try to arrange the marriages between a girl and a boy. And some of these marriages were arranged even at the time that their children were still little. I think of that funny as a father now with a three-year-old trying to, you know, figure that out for him. But now as I've become a dad, I feel in some senses that I probably have a better judgment than what my kid would have thinking back to my own age and the things that I've seen. But marriage was typically an arranged experience for people in Israel. And the reason why that was important is because oftentimes, unlike the affluence that we often experience within our world, marriage was a means for two families to truly come together and offer a mutual benefit for one another. So when two people were set to be married and they became betrothed or engaged, it was incredible incredibly serious within their time. In fact, it was so serious that in many senses, they were already considered husband and wife. It's why when Joseph 
finds out that Mary is pregnant, even though they had not had their ceremony and had not consummated their marriage yet, Joseph does what? He says that he's going to send for a certificate of divorce. So even within their culture as engaged individuals, they thought of being engaged as husband and wife. To where in order to break that engagement, you would in some ways need to have a legal document. But what's interesting about engagements within this time period is that what would typically happen is a man would go away from his betrothed. The woman would stay within his, her family's home under the care of her father's household, and the man, the groom, would go away to his own father's household. And there he would prepare a place for him and his wife. And oftentimes that place would be an attachment to the family home. Now, for some of you empty nesters that love your grandchildren and miss your own children living with you, I think probably some of you think this is a brilliant idea, right? Get to have all your kids under your household. But this period of the groom going away and preparing a home for his spouse was typically a period that would last at least a year. And here we start to see so much of the imagery that Christ gives between himself and who? His disciples, his church, his people. Because what is one of the things that Jesus tells us before he leaves? He says in John 14, 2 through 3, that my father's house has many rooms If that were not so, would have I told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And I go and prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. This is why Jesus says these words, because they would have been fully understood in the context of time that he was giving it. And so we look to this in remembrance in realizing that what Christ is showing us here in this marriage picture is that he is going away, right? That he is going away to prepare a place for us in heaven, in in, in heaven for us to eventually join him with and that one day he will come back. And so like that within their culture, the bride would not know when the groom would come to have the official wedding ceremony. So what would oftentimes happen is when the groom finished preparing his place for his bride, he would collect together with him his friends, and a trumpet would be sounded off in order to announce to everybody within the city that he was coming to receive his bride. And again, we see a perfect image there of what Christ reminds us, that when he comes back, what will happen? A trumpet will be sound for us to know that he is coming to collect us, his church, his bride. And when the groom shows up to 
the bride's house, so begins the wedding celebration that is going to happen. And it's an exciting one at that. And it, again, makes so much sense in why Matthew 25, Jesus reminds his disciples, his followers, to not be like the lazy, wicked maidens, the bridesmaids, who light their oil lamps too early and don't prepare for the time when the groom comes. So once the groom is there and the wedding festivities happen, the celebration breaks out. And unlike our culture where we typically have a wedding celebration over the course of a single day or an afternoon or maybe afternoon into an evening, their festivities oftentimes lasted an entire week. And the whole town would be invited to partake in this beautiful union. And it was the responsibility of the husband's family to oftentimes provide and prepare for this great celebration. Because of their culture of hospitality, it would have been so important for each of them to make sure that everything was taken care of. And if you ran out of wine, it was a big deal. Because in some ways, it meant that you didn't prepare enough to participate and to care for the importance of this celebration. And it would have been an incredible stain on the whole entire situation. So when Mary goes up to Jesus... And says to him, they have no more wine. It's very significant. It's not just that, oh no, the people that like wine won't have a drink. It's that this is in some ways going to bring shame on the entire event of what this marriage celebration is supposed to bring for them. And really, it gives us a deeper picture of what Jesus is trying to do in our lives. So what happens after that in verse 4? What does Jesus say in response to his mother who says, there is no more wine? Which, by the way, I like to think that one of the reasons why Mary concerns herself, and I don't know if I'm right, I just like to think this, is that she understands what it feels like to have shame around her own wedding. I mean, if you think about it, imagine the society around her and what they would have thought of a girl who was pregnant before the ceremony. I like to think that Mary cared so much because she remembered of the own, the own shame that she wrongly suffered when she was going through her own betrothal period. And Jesus replies to Mary by saying, woman, why do you involve me? Now, let me tell you this right here. This isn't Jesus being snarky to ladies. This is like saying, ma'am, in his day and age, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into what? Wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus turns six stone jars into wine. Pastor Kevin, this is a really wonderful message about how cute weddings were 2,000 years ago. But what in the world does that have to do with our church today? Well, within their time period, and I find this incredibly amazing, and make no mistake, Jesus was doing this with great purpose. Those jars were originally meant for what? For ceremonial cleansing. Because within their own culture, it was important to remain clean, to not be defiled, that in order to be able to even be in the somewhat close presence of God, you as a person needed to make sure that every single speck of you was as clean as it could be. So much so that even certain ailments within their time would render a person unclean and in so doing would prevent that person from being able to enter into the house of God and worship God himself. You see, really, we take for granted what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And many of us fail to realize that every religion, for the most part, that has ever existed, every main religion out there has taught and told people that in order for you to gain access to God, you need to earn his favor. You need to be the one that does something right in order to enter into God's presence. And so much so, this is still in some ways a normal thought process within Judaism, that you need to be clean in order to be in God's presence. So it's amazing, and it's no coincidence, that Jesus takes what? He takes the vessels that are meant to clean our outward body and does what? Turns them into wine so that we can consume it within our inward body. 
Because what he's going to do on the cross and the blood that he is going to shed for us is going to clean us, not on the outside, but on the inside. And it's going to transform us from the inside out. Christianity, Jesus, is the only person that allows his favor, his grace to be something that is freely given to you regardless of the choices that you've made. There is nothing that you could do to earn what Jesus has given you freely. It is a gift. Grace is a gift. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is a gift. So when Jesus turns these waters into wine, he is announcing in some ways to the world, whether they realize it or not, that my kingdom is going to change people from the inside out. That even though you believe that cleansing happened on the, ins- uh, on the outside, I'm going to bring a cleansing to the soul, a cleansing to the heart, a cleansing to the mind so that you will be radically transformed. And it gives so much emphasis to why the prophet said that God is going to take our heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Amen? Jesus wants to cleanse our lives And really the big idea for today is Jesus came to change us from the inside out. If for whatever reason you have forgotten this, remember it today. That there is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. But the beautiful message of the good news of the gospel is it doesn't matter. You don't need to. Jesus did for us what no one can do for themselves. And he lived a perfect life where we could not. And he suffered a punishment on a cross that would be deserving for ourselves. And he took that sin upon his own life so that we could have a bridge back to the Father. So we can know as people what it means to be cleansed. Church, when you came in today, at some point, Lena or somebody else handed you one of these infographics. And on this infographic is the hard work of the elders, of ministry team leaders, of others that we have been putting in as we think about what it means to be a church, what it means to even have a church. Because you see, our church takes very seriously the gospel. 
Our church takes very seriously the Great Commission and the good news that Jesus brings us. And we believe that God is calling this church and the people that are in it to be the kinds of people that can help bring that transformative change to others in our neighboring communities and lives. Which is why, as a church and as elders, we've taken the time to really be more intentional about the resources that we've been entrusted with. Our time, our treasures, our talents, and specifically with how we are discipling people and encouraging people within their walks of Christ here. Churches are not country clubs. They are not places where people just pay their member dues through their tithes and offerings, and we live to cater those that come into this place. Churches are lighthouses for the world. God calls us, Jesus encourages us to be like a city on a hill, to have a light that we can shine to other people and not a light that we hide under a basket, that we enclose within the walls of this building, but rather that we shine to the whole rest of the world because the world needs the gospel. Which is why on this little slip of paper, you'll learn a little bit more of how we're trying to be intentional with that. And let me be the first to admit This could look different in six months from now. This could look different in a year from now. We're still trying to work things out for ourselves, but in very many ways, we feel strongly that our direction needs to be tied with the Great Commission. So you will see now that the mission of Peace Mennonite Community Church is to say this with me, faithfully love God, care for one another, and serve our world. That key word there is our world because we believe that our world is both the large world but also the world of your own life. And we believe that God is calling us to do this. You see, the truth is is that if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have been going to church for a number of years. And when we ask what does it mean to be a disciple, it's easy for us to fumble. It's easy for us to kind of think and question, well, I don't know, maybe it means this or maybe it means that. It's always been this for me. So what we're trying to do now as a church is we're trying to give some discipleship values to you some ideas here and some values that we believe if you're doing these things, it will help you thrive in your walk with Jesus Christ. Now more could be added onto this list, but here are four that we think are very important. That we are a people who worship. What does worship mean? Worship happens when we sacrificially live our lives for God. That we are a people that connect. Connecting happens when we intentionally invest in the lives of others. We are a people that serve. And service happens when we value and meet the needs of others. And we are a people 
that give. Giving happens when we cherish the mission of God and allow our own resources to flow towards its efforts. I believe that many of us are engaging in some of these things. Some of us, though, if we're honest, could say, you know what, Pastor Kevin, I worship God, I come every Sunday, you know, I even give, I even, I, I even try to do other things, but I rarely try to connect. Or, you know what, Pastor, I rarely ever serve. Well, if you are missing out on that, in some ways you are missing out on the full breath of what it means to thrive in your, in your faith. Because here's the thing, that even though grace is a free gift from God, ultimately God desires so much more for us than to just simply receive that gift. But rather, he desires for us to partner with him in continuing to bring this message message to the world, to love people, to worship him, to connect with others, to serve, to give towards these efforts, because ultimately doing all of these things changes us and changes others. Amen? Howard Hendricks has a quote that in some ways harms me, but is really good, and he says something to the effect that if your religion doesn't work well in your own home, don't export it. Or that's also another good one. You teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are. We want to be a people within this church that are so in love with Jesus that are living out Jesus in our daily lives, that we become such a good reflection of him to this world so that we can continue to bring hope and healing to those that need it, to the world that thinks that cleanliness happens on the outside instead of being transformed by Christ on the inside. Because there will be a day when Christ comes back and that trumpet is sound. And there will be a day when those things happen. And until that day comes, I believe God is calling each of us to live with intentionality in our faith. To be disciples who thrive in our faith and through, through so thriving, we make disciples of other people. Amen? And I believe that in doing that, we can have the kind of impact that God desires for our life. But here in this place, we will be encouraging you to worship, to connect, to serve, to give. And we're going to take the next four weeks to explore what each of those mean. How do I worship? How do I connect? How do I serve? How do I give? In the back, though, we created a little bit of a cheat sheet for you. And if in this message you have felt maybe a little convicted, a little like, you know, I really serve, but I rarely worship, or... 
I, sh- I worship, but I rarely connect, then I want to encourage you to start to think about how you can get involved in different ways within this place so that you can thrive in your faith. So my hope is, is that my application for this week, the thing that I would like you to do, is I'd like you to read this every day this week. Even there's scripture verses associated with each value. I encourage you to open up those texts and read them for yourself. And then take the time to ask yourself, Lord, what on this list am I doing well? Lord, what, am I, what on this list might I need to grow in? And this is not meant to be a tool to make you feel bad. It's just meant to be a tool to help you thrive. So that in some ways, you have a barometer, if you will, for how you are thriving in your faith. So that if there's an area of your life that you're missing, you can immediately in some ways orient yourself and say, you know what? It's been a long time, too long, since I've allowed the body of believers to really be a part of my life and me a part of their lives. I need to connect more. So you see how this tool is supposed to work for each of us? This is, we're going to be talking about this more each week, and I pray that you will be excited about joining in this journey with us. But let's go ahead and take some time to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what you've done for us in our lives and the cross, how you came into this world to truly change us in ways that we couldn't change ourselves. I pray, Father, that you help each of us be disciples, but not just disciples, but thriving disciples in our faith. And I ask, Lord, that you would help each of us learn how to worship, how to connect, how to serve, how to give in greater ways. Because ultimately, God, we value your mission. We value what you've done for us on the cross. And we don't want that work to end with our lives but we want that work to continue on in the generations to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today is communion.